Good evening. I want to start by thanking the men uh, who were involved in the preaching rotation for being patient with me as I finished up school, and I'm glad to be jumping back into the mix now. Uh, we have a lot to get to tonight and next week as well, so let's go straight in for it. Um, my plan, just so that you're aware, is to teach a series for the next however many times that I get to go on biblical theology. I would eventually like to pick a, a book of the Bible and walk through it expositionally, providing application and all of those things like we get on Sunday mornings, but uh, I have decided for, for the, the time being to do a series of mostly teaching, somewhat analogous to what Paul does when he's taking us through the confession. Now, I need to explain what biblical theology is. You've all heard the term systematic theology, I imagine. And systematic theology is when we take a, do a topic or a doctrine or a theme, like maybe justification, and we go and we look at all of the different Bible passages that speak about that topic. We exegete them in their context. We figure out what is this text saying about it and what is this text saying about it. And then we harmonize and systematize all of the different passages that speak on that one subject. And we come up with, here's what the Bible teaches about this subject. That's systematic theology. Biblical theology, you might be tempted to think, isn't all theology biblical? Isn't that a redundancy or something like that? It's actually a technical term that, that is similar to systematic theology, but, but in a, differs in a very important way. In biblical theology, we take a theme, just like we do in systematic theology, but rather than just going to every text randomly that addresses it in no particular order, in biblical theology, we start chronologically with the first place that that topic is mentioned in Scripture, and then we trace it on a straight line through the canon all the way to Revelation. And we see... What does God reveal about this doctrine here? And then how does that develop here? And then we come to this point in history. And how is, how is God revealing more information and more information? And then, as is always the case in Scripture, we come to how does this find its fulfillment, its, its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's what we're going to be doing. I'm going to be taking some topics and sort of taking us straight through the canon. And I hope that this will be helpful because the next book that we plan on going through in our morning services is Revelation. And if you want to understand the book of Revelation, it's been said, you don't go to the headlines of what's happening in Russia and in China and Israel and places like that. You go to the Old Testament. That's how you understand the book of Revelation. And, and what we're going to do here is going to force us to get into the Old Testament and maybe explore some aspects of it that we, we don't often get to, uh, whether it be in our individual lives or in our lives as the church. So the first topic that I want to take us through is something that I feel is really foundational to the entire story and structure of the Bible as a whole, and that is the topic of temple. Temple. So we're going to be, I'm not going to be able to do all this in one day, so I'm going this week and next week. We're going to do two back-to-back -back weeks where we look at how temple develops all throughout the scriptures. Now, if we're going to be tracing temple from the first time it appears in scripture through to the book of Revelation, then we have to ask the question, where is the first time that the idea of temple appears in scripture? If you were to ask the average Christian that question, when is the first time that a temple is mentioned? And I'm talking about a Christian who's at least semi-literate in the Bible, not most of the driftwood that floats through evangelical churches, but someone who, who reads the Bible fairly consistently. Where's the first time that we find temple? The average Christian is going to tell you, well, it's under the days of, of David and Solomon, right? That's when the temple was built, the physical structure in Israel, some, somewhere in one of those books about kings or something like that. That's where we first see temple. Or if you're talking to a slightly more nuanced Christian, they might say, actually, the first time that we encounter the concept of temple is not when it's built in the days of Solomon. It actually happens way back in the time of Moses. 
when the tabernacle is erected, right? Because the tabernacle, that, that tent that they wandered around the wilderness with, was sort of a, a foreshadowing of the actual temple that would be built when they were settled in the land. So 98 to 99% of people would respond with, well, the first time we see temple is either in the days of Solomon or in the days of Moses with the tabernacle. But what I'm going to be suggesting this evening, and I owe much of, of what I've been studying on this to a handful of wonderful, excellent Reformed commentators. I, I won't give you all their names just for time's sake, but I'm not the first one to suggest this, that the first time we see temple in Scripture is not in Solomon's day, and it's not in Moses' day. It's back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now, what should be going through your mind is, I've read that passage many times. I don't remember the word temple. I don't remember any physical structures there. What do you mean that the, the temple first appears in the Garden of Eden? Actually, what we're going to suggest is that the Garden of Eden was the first temple in Scripture. And so what I need to do now is go through and hopefully demonstrate to your satisfaction that the Bible actually conceives of Eden as the first temple, the very first temple. And, ju and just so we have a working definition, the temple is the special place of God's dwelling on the earth amongst men. The special place of God's dwelling on the earth amongst men. So let's go through this. There's, I'm going to spend most of my time here because I need to establish this because what we're going to see in the Garden of Eden is going to be so foundational that it's going to determine everything that comes afterward in Scripture on this subject. So consider the following texts and points. First, you've, you all remember the text in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. After Adam and Eve have sinned, it says, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. God walking in the garden. So we see two things there immediately. First, the garden is a special place where God dwells. His presence is there. He's walking. Now you might say, okay, big deal. Does that really prove that the Garden of Eden was a temple just because God walks there? Well, no, not necessarily. But it's fascinating that if we just jump forward a little bit in Scripture, we actually see that there's one other place where God is described as walking in the same way that He is described as doing so in the Garden of Eden. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6, David is considering building a house unto the Lord. He has come before the Lord in prayer and says, I, I want to build the, the temple. I want to build this, this dwelling place for the Lord my God. And God responds and says this, I have not lived in a house from the day that I brought the people up out of Egypt to this day, but I have been walking about in a tent for my dwelling. That's the same word that God is described as walking in the garden. And where is he walking? In the tent. What tent? the tabernacle, the special place of God's dwelling amongst the Israelites. He's said to have walked around in the midst of the tabernacle. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 14, speaking to the Israelites in the wilderness, Moses says, The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp, therefore you must be holy. Now where did God dwell in the midst of the Israelite camp? In the tabernacle. And he's, it says he walks in the midst of that tabernacle. So, God's presence is described as walking. That's the first consideration. doesn't prove it automatically, but this will be a cumulative case, and I think by the end you'll agree with me that it's, it's pretty obvious. Secondly, when Adam is placed in the garden, he is told he must work and keep the garden. Work it and keep it. Now, when we hear those words, our immediate inclination is to say, well, that means he's supposed to, like, trim the hedges and dig the dirt in the ground and pull up the weeds and stuff like that, what we would think of as a typical gardener. And I'm sure that some of that was involved. We don't know the exact nature of gardening pre-fall before the ground was cursed. But 
I'm sure he had some of those responsibilities. But the two words there for work and keep it are two words that are also translated later on in the Old Testament as guard and serve. Guard and serve. And when they are used together, they are almost 99 times out of 100 used to describe the roles that the priests must undertake in their guarding and serving the tabernacle or the temple. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Numbers chapter 18, verse 6. The Levites, that's the priests, are a gift to you given to the Lord to guard and serve the tabernacle. That's the same words where Adam was to uh, work and keep the garden. They are to guard and serve the special place of God's dwelling. <coughs> First Chronicles 23, 32. When David is organizing the, the priests and, and the Levites in preparation for the building of the temple, we read, Thus they, the priests, were to guard the tabernacle and to attend the sons of Aaron for the serving of the house of the Lord. They are to guard and serve. The same words where Adam has said he is to work and keep the garden. So we have a little bit of, of imagery there as Adam being compared to a priest. And where did the priest serve? In the temple. And Adam is put there and he's said to do the same thing that the priests do, but he's to do it in the Garden of Eden. Next, <coughs> you all remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 where he looks up into the throne room and he sees the, the, the dwelling place of God. He gets unparalleled access. There are many features, many things that he sees there, but one of the things that is explicitly mentioned is the fact that there are cherubim present. There are cherubim flying around the throne of God and they are guarding it. And what is the first time that we see a cherub in Scripture? Right after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God places a cherubim to guard the way into that place. Cherubim guard the throne room of God and the Holy of Holies, His temple. Cherubim guard the Garden of Eden. Why? Why would they need to guard the Garden of Eden? Because it's a special dwelling place of the Lord God Himself. Next, and this one, uh, I sort of thought about this one as I was on my porch one evening and and this one continues to fascinate me. When Adam was placed in the garden, we've talked about this, I think, before. Was he just supposed to stay in the garden forever? Just working and keeping the garden until infinity had passed? Of course not. The goal was always that Adam would obey and attain to glory. He would be transported from the place where he dwelt in the garden into the very presence of God Himself, where God dwells. He would be glorified if He passed the test. But what was to be sort of the, the figurative gateway that Adam would have to pass through in being transported from Eden into the presence of God? It was the tree of life. I don't know if we, how many of us have considered that before, but, but think about what God says when He evicts them from the garden. He says, we're going to set a cherub to guard the way to what? the tree of life. Why? Lest they take of it and live forever. Adam, should he pass his test in Eden, would get to eat of the fruit of that tree. And there was no magical power within the fruit, but it was sort of a, a sacramental or symbolic means that God would use to say, you have passed the test, you may now enter into my presence. So inherent in passing to the very dwelling place of God is the idea of going through the tree of life. Now, why does that matter? Turn to Exodus. I want you to see this. Turn to Exodus chapter 25, if you're able to. Exodus chapter 25. I was wondering if anybody would have caught on to something like this when we read this just a few weeks ago in the public reading of Scripture. I don't remember who was reading it, but 
In Exodus chapter 25, God's giving all the detailed instructions about the building of the tabernacle. And we come to verse 31, and we read about the instructions for the building of the golden lampstand that was to be in the tabernacle, the lampstand. Now, we just said that the tree of life was the passageway from wherever Adam was dwelling as God's priest into the special place of God's dwelling. The lampstand is placed where? In the holy place between the priest and the holy of holies where God dwells. The tree stands between where the priest is and where God is. And you say, I'm sorry, the lampstand stands between where the priest is and where God is. And it's fascinating. We're going to read a few verses here that describe the golden lampstand. I want you to notice the arboreal or the tree-like imagery that God uses in telling them to build this lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes. Now, I actually didn't know what a calyx was. I had to look it up. But when you have a flower, apparently the calyx is the... I don't know how to describe them almost. They're these four little green stem-like things that sort of encase the flower itself. But the point is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an imagery of, of flowers here. It's cups, it's calyxes, and it's flowers shall be of one piece with it. This is a lampstand. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand on the one side and three branches of the lampstand on the other side of it. Three cups made of almond blossoms, tree language, each with a calyx and a flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on the other branch, for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and their flowers, and a calyx with one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it with a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. God puts a lampstand in the tabernacle, and it looks like a tree. Why? Because God is calling to mind what was already in his first temple, the tree of life, which was the, the gateway between the priest's location and the holy place, and the holy of holies where God himself dwelt. So we have further connection between Eden and the later temples and tabernacles that came in Israel's history. Consider this, when the time comes for the temple itself to be built in Solomon's day, Solomon is told to build a temple in Israel, which is not exactly known as being like Costa Rica. It's not exactly known for being a jungle, arboreal forest place. Now, they've built artificial gardens there, of course, but naturally, you don't think Israel. Yeah, that's the place where I go if I want to see all the pretty gardens that naturally occur. And yet, when they build the temple in the midst of Israel and Jerusalem, for some reason, God has them putting all this flower and garden imagery into it. Consider 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 18, and the instructions to Solomon. The cedar within the house is to be carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Chapter 6, verse 29. Around the walls of the temple, he carved engraved figures of cherubim. Where was the first place we saw that? And palm trees and open flowers. Verse 33. The two leaves of the door of the entrance to the inner sanctuary are to be folding, and on them you shall carve cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Chapter 7, verse 18. Likewise, on the tops of the pillars of the tabernacle, he made pomegranates of latticework. The pillars were of lily work with rows of pomegranates. Now, why is God 
having them build a temple that's not in the middle of a garden, but he's putting garden imagery into it because he's calling to mind what was in Eden. Second, you can consider, I don't know if this is second, I just said second, but you can consider the, uh, oh, I didn't put the image up there. Well, if you look at your papers, you'll see that there's a very large, and we'll come back to this at a later point, there's a very large basin where the priests are to wash in. They're to wash in a basin before they can enter into the presence of God. It's sort of in the outer court. I think it's toward the bottom left of the picture. And it specifically says that that uh, large basin is to be carved in the form of a gourd. You know what a gourd is. It has to do with flower imagery. And second, the little basins that you can see a picture of, the little mini basins that the priests were to roll around when they were going to clean up the blood of the animals or to wash their hands there as well, those were to be carved with palm trees on them additionally. So God puts all of this garden imagery into the temple. Why? Because Eden was the first temple. So you can also consider the fact that this will go through these really quickly. Eden was on a mountain. Solomon's temple was on a mountain. The end time temple in Revelation is described as being on a mountain. The Garden of Eden faces east. Solomon's temple faces east. So does the end time temple. And think about this. The, the temple of Solomon had a three-part structure to it. And if you look at your sheet, you can see that. You had the inner court where the priests and even the people of Israel could enter. Then you had the holy place. And then you had the holy of holies. But it had a three-part structure to it. So did Eden. You say, what do you mean? Well, you have the garden, and then you have Eden. Now remember, the garden is not the same thing as Eden. The garden is in Eden. There's Eden the place and the garden within it. So you have the garden, then you have Eden, and then you have the rest of the world that Adam is to go out and to inhabit. Just like the temple that Solomon would have. It had that three-part structure with increasing holiness. As a matter of fact, as, as you went into the inner place in the temple, you were going to increasingly holy territory. The same thing was it originally. You had the, the rest of the world that had not been subdued by the Lord or by mankind, and then you had the special place of Eden and then the very special place of the garden. All of these parallels. And if that doesn't cinch it for you, then I think Ezekiel, this is the last thing for this section. Ezekiel chapter 28, you can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. Just, this is a fascinating passage, and we're going to come back to it multiple times in a, a few of these discussions. Ezekiel chapter 28, I just love this passage, but I'm going to read verses 11 to 18 real quick, but we're going to focus in on one verse, because I want to get this passage into your consciousness. The Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, He's speaking to the king of Tyre, but as is often the case in the prophets, he's not actually speaking about the king of Tyre. You're going to see real quickly, he's speaking about Adam. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. We're going to come back to that verse in future weeks. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found within you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. Here's, here's the verse that we're interested in right now. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So what do we just read? God, speaking prophetically through Ezekiel, says to Adam, you profaned the sanctuary that I placed you in. The sanctuary? Well, what else in Scripture is called the sanctuary? The temple and the tabernacle. And yet God says, you, Adam, profane the Garden of Eden, my sanctuary. So I think we have clear biblical warrant for saying that the first temple was actually the Garden of Eden. So, the question then arises, so what? Why does that matter? Let's say that we all buy into the notion that Eden was a temple. What does that do for us? Well, there's a very interesting dichotomy that I hadn't noticed until a couple of months ago about what's happening in the Garden of Eden. And I think it'll, if we understand it, it will allow us to see the big picture of, of why this is important. Have you ever noticed that God seemingly gives contradictory commands to Adam in respect to what he's to do? We already talked about one of them. He was supposed to work and keep the garden, right? He's supposed to work it and keep it. So he's to be in the garden, work and keep in the garden. And then what does he say to him later on? Be fruitful and multiply, go out and fill the earth. So which one is it? Are they to stay in the garden, working and keeping the garden, or is he to leave the garden and go out into the rest of the world and multiply and fill in that? Which one is it? The only way to harmonize those two is to realize that part of Adam's working and keeping the garden was not just making things pretty. He was tasked with expanding the garden beyond the borders of where it was so that as he expands the garden, as he expands God's temple, he goes out into the rest of the world and subdues it and fills it with the glory of God until the whole earth becomes God's special dwelling place. And that's key. We have to understand that. Inherent to the concept of temple is the idea of commissioning the filling of that temple throughout all the earth. It's there from the very beginning in Genesis. They're to go out and expand the borders of the temple, subduing all the earth on God's behalf. <clears throat> so then, did Adam succeed? Well, obviously not. He said he did not carry out his commission. He did not work and keep the garden properly, and he certainly didn't take it and expand it into all of the earth. So he's cast as a profane thing from the garden. And God's commission is left unfulfilled. So that's the first section. The temple is present in the Garden of Eden, and inherent with the temple is the commission to go into all the earth and fill the earth with God's presence, God's special dwelling. So now we're going to start our march through the scriptures, and we're only going to stay in the Old Testament today because there's just too much. If I were to ask you the question, okay, now I, I hopefully approved your satisfaction that the first time we see temple is in Eden, so when is the next time we see it? Most people would say, okay, now it's got to be when we get to the tabernacle because I don't remember anything about a temple between the fall in Eden and the time of the Exodus when God sets up the tabernacle. But I, as, as I've read, a lot of Reformed commentators who've commented on this stuff, I'm becoming more and more convinced, and I won't say this is a dogmatic thing, but, but a lot of people, especially Dr. Meredith Klein, have suggested that the next time we see temple is actually in the days of Noah. So I just want to offer some thoughts for your consideration about what was happening in Noah's day, and then 
as we expand this out into the whole of the canon, I hope what I'm about to say becomes more and more convincing. So, do we see temple in the days of Noah? I think we do. I think we do. And it may surprise you to th for me to suggest that the ark itself was actually a type of temple. Consider the following things. You all know those passages that we're currently reading in the morning where God's giving all the detailed building instructions about the tabernacle. And then when you jump forward to the time of the temple in the first Kings 6, 7, and 8, more and more detailed instructions, detailed instructions about how to build it. Here's how, and why does God do that? Because it's, what they're building is patterned after something in heaven, so it has to be perfect. Where is the only other place in Scripture that we get detailed building instructions about something? It's the ark, isn't it? It's got to be this long, this high. I want this many animals in it. Here's how you divide it up. I want you to put some pitch on it, some tar while you're at it. God gives very explicit and detailed instructions to Noah. The only other place he does that is when they're building his special sanctuary. Next, the first time, you all know that there are clean and unclean animals in Scripture in the Levitical Code. Clean and unclean animals. Only clean animals were allowed, and even only a subset of them, in the sacrificial system. And the first time that clean and unclean animals are introduced is when they are to be brought into the ark. God says, I want seven of every clean animal in the ark. He hadn't mentioned that before, but he does feel the need to mention it when they're going into the ark. Interesting observation. Second, or third, the temple in general was the place where God's wrath could be appeased. They would go in and they would offer sacrifices to God, and in doing so, the wrath of God would be abated. And what was the, what was the ark? Peter makes this point. They were safe from the wrath of God when they went into the ark in the days when God poured out his wrath upon all of the earth. Once the flood has subsided, Noah comes out and starts performing immediately priestly functions. He builds an altar. He makes sacrifice to the Lord on it as the priest would. And it's, it specifically says for the first time in Scripture that Noah's sacrifice was a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of the Lord. Where are the other places where pleasing aromas are generated? In the temple and in the tabernacle when the priest offers sacrifice. The same thing with the Lord Jesus and his high priestly functions. And curiously, right there alongside these temple imageries that are present in the ark, as soon as he gets out of the ark, he gets that same commission that Adam got, didn't he? He's told to go out into the earth, fill it, subdue it, multiply in it. So he's to take what was in the temple, the humans and the animals, and he's to fill the earth with the contents of that temple. He's to fill the earth and subdue it, just like Adam was. He's performing the same functions as Adam, and he also had an ark that he was to, uh, sorry, a temple that he was to expand out into all the earth. But the same problem is here. He's a sinner. And right after we read the commission in chapter 9, what's the next thing we read in chapter 9? He gets drunk, and he fails. And he and his posterity don't go out into all the earth. In fact, he goes and builds a vineyard in a specific place and settles down and, and, and puts his pegs in the ground, figuratively speaking, and he stays in one place. And then right after that, the Tower of Babel. And what do they specifically say at the Tower of Babel? Come, let us build a tower, lest we be dispersed across the face of the earth. The Tower of Babel was an inherent rebellion against the commission of God to go out into the earth and to fill it and subdue it and to expand God's glory into all the four corners of the earth. So we had another temple building episode, another commission, and another failure. 
So then we come forward again in Genesis, moving along in time, and we come to the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this, I, I did not see this until someone pointed this out to me, but the more I've thought about it, the more I think it's fascinating. I think it's, you can make a fair case that there are actually these small temple-building episodes in the life of both Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the patriarchs, these same little temple-building episodes. I want you to consider this. I'm going to read some sections from the life of each of them. And there's this, this fascinating thing that there are, in each of these stories that we're going to very, very briefly go through, there are seven elements that unite all three of these stories that are all directly related to the idea of there being a temple. And in each of these stories, at least five or six of these elements are present. In each of these stories, we see the following things. God appears to them. God makes his presence felt in a specific place. It occurs on a mountaintop, just like the temple in Eden. They build altars and they worship the Lord, performing priestly functions. They pitch a tent. The word there is literally they pitch a tabernacle. The place where they do it is called Bethel, which means the house of God. A tree in two of the three instances is explicitly mentioned, connecting back to the tree in the garden and the tree lampstand in the tabernacle. And they receive the same commission. So, let me read to you a, a couple of episodes. The first one we'll look at very briefly is from the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read a few select verses here. Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 2. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that, though, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 6. Abraham passed through the land to a place called Shechem, to an oak of Moriah. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai on the east. And there he again built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, those references went by fairly quickly. I recognize that. But what just happened in the life of Abraham? God appears to him. He builds an altar. He pitches a tabernacle. He goes to a place called the house of God, Bethel. There's a tree explicitly mentioned, and he receives the commission from God that he and his offspring are to fill the entire earth. But God's repeating this pattern again. Then we come to the life of Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. And we're reading just this couple of verses here in verses 23 through 25. From there, Isaac went up to Beersheba, and the Lord to, appeared to him, making his presence known in a specific place, on the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So there he built an altar called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tabernacle. Once again, he, the Lord appears to him in a special place. He builds an altar and worships. He acts as a priest. He builds a tabernacle, and the place that he does it is called Bethel. And he receives that same commission. And then later on in the life... I'm sorry, getting mixed up with Jacob there. That's Isaac. Then we come to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. And we read this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up upon the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. 
And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we skip down and read, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, and he set, up for a, set it up for a pillar as an altar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I should go and will give me bread and clothing to wear, then I will come again, and the Lord shall be my God. Now, what do we see there? Jacob goes to Bethel. He pitches a tent. He builds an altar. He sacrifices. God appears to him and says, This is the gate of heaven. The Lord once again makes his presence felt in a special place. So that's the time of the patriarchs. We see that God is announcing his intention to dwell with a specific people in a specific place to make his presence felt. And that his dwelling is to expand and fill the entire earth in the form of these commissions that he keeps giving to them over and over. And these are all the same elements that we had in Eden and back in the days of Noah. But I want you to notice something. The commission was different this time. In the past, God said, you go into the earth, be fruitful and fill and multiply it. But they keep failing. And now we come to the days of the patriarchs, and they get the same commission. But this time it's a promise. I will multiply your offspring. I will fill the earth with your offspring. They shall be as the, the dust of the ground. God notices, he knows, that the only way this is going to work is if he himself is the one that fulfills it. So that's the time of the patriarchs. Now we come to the time of Israel, and this will be the last section for this evening. We're doing good on time. We come to the days of Israel. And so far, as we've seen, everybody has failed on these tasks where God, they are to establish the, the, the temple of God and then to fill it out into the entire earth. They've all failed. And so God now takes the nation of Israel, forms it and fashions it in the language of a new creation, and he gives to Israel, the nation, the same commission, the same commission that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Noah, and to Adam. And he does it in two ways, by word, literally telling them to go and do these things. And this time, he gives it to them by physical example. I won't spend a lot of time on the word section. Suffice it to say that in several places, God tells Israel that, that they will expand into all the four corners of the earth and that the earth shall be filled with Israelites, so to speak. That's the commission in terms of word. But he also gives them a visual picture of his presence going and filling the entire earth. And he does it in the form of the physical temple that he has them build. And just in case you're wondering, for the sake of time, I am, I am condensing the tabernacle in the days of the Exodus and the temple that Solomon built into one thing. Because there's so many parallels, it would just be repetitive to treat them differently. Now, we read something very, very interesting in the Psalms. In speaking of the construction of the physical temple in Israel, the psalmist says this. Psalm 78, verse 69. God built his sanctuary like the high heavens... 
like the earth which he has founded forever. Let me read that one more time. God built his sanctuary like the high heavens and like the earth which he has founded forever. What's he referring to there? The temple. And what does he say? God built the temple like the skies and like the physical earth. Now this would be a great time to take a look down if you've got a copy of the, the little picture I passed out. Take a look at that thing for a second. If I were to give you a bunch of building materials and say, I want you to build me a model of what the skies and the earth look like, would you have come up with that? I doubt it. I know that I wouldn't have. And yet the psalmist says, God built his temple just as a model of the skies and of the earth. Now we're going to have to think about that because that's going to, once we explain it, it's going to connect with everything that we've seen so far. But here's what you've got to understand. In the Jewish mind, the universe is divided into three main parts. Okay? You have the earth and the seas, that's the land. You have the skies, which are sometimes referred to as the heaven. And then you have the heaven beyond the heaven, which is the place where God dwells. You've got those three parts. The, the universe is structured in those three ways. And there's one other place where we've seen the number three so far with respect to the temple, right? The temple has three sections to it. You have the inner court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And what we're going to suggest is that each of those sections of the temple corresponds to one of the three sections of the universe in the Jewish mind. But I'm going to have to take you through and prove that. Let's look at the inner court of the temple for just a moment. If you can see it on your outline, it might help if you take a look at it. How on earth does that inner court parallel the earth and the seas of the world that we live in? Well, first... The inner court was the place where humanity could dwell. You, you, all of the Israelites could come in there and they could observe what was going on. They, there weren't as many restrictions. The women may not have been able to enter into there. But, it, but it's the place where humanity dwells. Humanity in a narrow sense, yes. But humanity in general is welcome into that place. And that's exactly where humanity dwells in the world. We dwell on the earth and maybe if you're a pirate or something in the seas. But... That, the point is, there's a parallel between the fact that all of the people could come in there and that's where the people live upon the earth. Second, the wash basin, the wash basin, the huge wash basin where priests could get in is specifically referred to as the sea, the sea. Next, there's a big altar where some of the animals were sacrificed and God goes out of his way to describe that altar in very earthy language. It is an altar of stone. It has bronze in it. It has clay, those elements of the earth. It is layered with gold. It's specifically called the bosom of the earth. That altar is referred to as the bosom of the earth. And it is referred to as the altar of uncut stone. God is draw, sort of putting all of this earthy language into how he describes this outer court. Next, that same big water basin that was called the sea is upheld by 12 bulls. That represents the animal kingdom. And those 12 bulls are divided into sections of four sections of threes. And how are they facing? Three of them are facing north, then south, then east, then west. That's all the four points of the compass of the earth itself. So you have the animal kingdom represented there, and you have the four corners of the earth, which we see all throughout Scripture. Next, the, the smaller basins that the priests would kind of push around, those were carved specifically with animals and with planty things. Lions were carved onto them as well. 
That's more animal kingdom and plant or earthy language in this particular section of the temple. And then we've already talked about all the garden and flower imagery that was present there as well. So God specifically puts the stuff in the inner sanctuary, sorry, in the uh, inner court that he does and, and labels it and carves it and describes it in language that is very much parallel to the physical earth and to the seas. All right, now we move into the holy place within the temple. We go from the inner court to the holy place. Now, only the priests are allowed. Only the priests may go in this place. It's more holy. And what we're going to suggest is that the holy place corresponds to the skies. It was modeled after the skies and the heavens above. How so? Well, we've already said that in the holy place there was this lampstand. And the lampstand, follow this, had seven lights on it. Seven lights. Now, seven's the number of perfection in Scripture. We know that. But it's interesting that in, in Judaism at this time, and really in the rest of the world, there were seven lights that you could see in the skies with the naked eye. The sun, the moon, and five planets that are visible to the naked eye without the need of a telescope. You say, that might be stretching for a parallel a little bit. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation narrative, you remember that God says, or it says that God placed the greater light into the sky to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. Now that word for light that's used there, it's the Hebrew word meor. It is not the typical word for light. Earlier we had already read in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. That's not the same word that God uses to describe these special planetary lights. It's a very specific word. And the word that, that is used to describe this lampstand with seven lights on it is the same word that is used to describe the planetary lights. The exact same word. They don't use the regular normal word for light. They use this very rare word that is mostly used to describe planetary stuff. Why? Because God wants to draw a parallel between this holy place, the second portion of the temple, and the skies above. Next, we have that, that specific place layered in gold, and we're told that that is to represent the sun. And then, interestingly, the curtain in that holy place, the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies, God tells them exactly what color to use in that curtain. And what's the color? Blue and deep purples, the colors that the Jews always use to describe the skies. And they're to even weave little winged creatures into this curtain. Specifically told that. Winged creatures. Where do those things fly? In the sky. And then, this was fascinating when I saw this, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, listen to this, says, God stretches out the heavens, that's the skies, like a curtain. He spreads a tent over them. God spreads a tent or a curtain across the skies. And where does he place the tent or the curtain? Right in the place in the temple that's meant to, to parallel the skies above. And there are, honestly, I had to stop myself. I wanted to do like ten more parallels that I found, but... I think that's enough of a representative sampling. So make sure you're tracking with me. We have the, the inner court, which represents the earth and the seas. Then we move into the holy place, and God puts all this sky and, and heaven imagery in that. And then we move into the holy of holies. And this is meant to represent, not to anybody's surprise, the, the place where God dwells in his own perfect glory, beyond the skies, the, the heavenly dwelling place of God. Now just a few parallels here. What do we know of the Holy of Holies in heaven? What do we know of it? Well, once again, we turn to Isaiah's vision. And when he looks into the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself dwells, 
we notice two things right off the bat. It's filled with smoke, and there are cherubim, as we've already said, encircling the throne. Now, in the Holy of Holies in the temple, God places two cherubim to guard the ark, and even the ark itself has cherubim on it. The cherubim are specifically placed in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because that's where they dwell, in the dwelling place of God, in God's actual, uh, if we can call it his home, in the heavens. And these angels are guarding the ark of the covenant. Now, why is that important? Because David specifically says that the ark of the covenant is an extension on the earth of God's throne in heaven. He says in 1 Chronicles 28, Here, my brothers, I had it in my heart to build a house for the ark of the Lord, which is the footstool of our God. Now, here's the picture. I think Paul's mentioned this before. God's sitting in his heavenly throne room on his throne, and he's putting his feet down. And the place where his feet land is on top of the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. That's the picture. So the Ark of the Covenant was meant to be a, a picture of God's throne room itself. And in God's actual throne room, there are cherubim guarding the throne. That's what they do, and they worship. And what does God put in the earthly representation of his throne? Cherubim to guard it. Why? Because he's making the connection that this place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, corresponds to the actual place that I dwell in the heavenly realms. And, of course, we mentioned that the, holy, the heavenly place in Isaiah's vision is filled with smoke when he sees it. And what did the high priest do when he went into the Holy of Holies? He had to fill the place with smoke first before he could even enter because it was too holy. So what does that show us as we bring this to a close? Wow, I thought I was going to be stretching on time. I'm doing good. That's not typical for me. Uh, what does this show us? That God gave to Israel a very specific picture of, of what he wanted. That the temple was meant to be a small representation of the entire universe. The temple had three parts in it. The earth and the seas, the skies, and the heavenly places where God dwells. That's everything. The temple was an, a picture of the entirety of everything that exists. Why would God make them build something like that? Because he's saying to them, this is the plan. My temple is to be expanded out until it is synonymous with the entirety of everything, until my presence fills every place that can be imagined, the, the earth and the seas, the skies, the place where I dwell. My presence shall be everywhere, and this, Israel, is your charge. This is your charge. My temple is not to, this, this temple I've had you build under Solomon is not meant to be an end in and of itself where it just stays here and we worship here until eternity rolls around. No, you have a commission. You are to take this temple, not literally stone by stone, but you are to expand it out into all of the world until all of the world is filled with my glory. That was their task. And praise God they did it. Or not. Because the Israelites were sinners. And those unregenerate Israelites didn't want the earth filled with God's glory. He had tasked them with doing it. But in their sin, they said, no. We will serve the Astra. And we will serve Baal. And we will build altars to them. And we will not have your laws and your commandments. And so they rebel. And after much long suffering and patience, what does God do? 
He cast them out of the land to the east, just like he did with Adam. He kicks them out, and they don't do what they were supposed to do. And the earth is not filled with the presence and the glory of God as they were intended to. And for a time, all seems lost because the temple's been destroyed and the God's people are gone. And this is like the fourth or fifth time in a row that somebody has failed to carry out this commission of taking God's temple and expanding it into all the earth. And it is in the midst of that despair and seeming failure that a few hundred years later, a prophet named Ezekiel steps forth and receives a vision. And that vision spans nine chapters of his book. It's a big vision. And what's in the vision? We're going to get to it next week. But It's a temple. It's not one that exists on the earth in his day. But there's something special about this temple that he gets a vision of. And at the very least, we can conclude this. That God's saying, I'm not done yet. This commission that I gave to Adam, that I gave to Noah, that I gave to the patriarchs, that I gave to Israel, it will be fulfilled. And as we learn from the days of the patriarchs, if it's going to be fulfilled, God himself is going to have to be the one to do it. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll see what happens in this Ezekiel vision. And then a little carpenter's son will be born in Nazareth. And he's going to take up the great task of expanding this temple. And we're going to see how we're involved in all that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your wisdom and how you have placed all of these things together in Scripture. And how there is no limit. There's no limit whatsoever to the depths of your word. And we could plumb them for eternity and we would still never fully understand and comprehend everything that you have placed just in your word, much less understand your nature in and of itself. So, Lord, I ask that you would broaden our understanding and deepen our intense love for your word, that as we search it and do the hard work, as we heard this morning, of searching out your word and making it the foundation of our lives, that you would reward us with with seeing wonderful things, wonderful things out of your word, and that every time we are there, we would get a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and how all things are brought to a head in him. Anoint our lips, anoint our feet, anoint our minds this week as we go forth to be your holy priesthood, that we might offer acceptable sacrifices to you and be sanctified in the truth of your word. We love you, and we ask these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen.